Welcome back, Fire fans. Uh, today we have the privilege of introducing a remarkable guest. He is a seasoned pararescue veteran who served at the 301st Aerospace Rescue and Recovery Squadron in Homestead Air Force Base, Florida for four years. Additionally, he had an illustrious 24-year career with the CIA, where he actively engaged in combating Marxists, communists, drug cartels, jihad extremists, terrorists across the globe, and even a volcano. Whether he realizes it or not, he is a national hero and a true embodiment of the American spirit. We at the I Came With Fire podcast proudly present Enrique A. Rick Prado and strongly recommend his book, Black Ops, The Life of a CIA Shadow Operator. So thank you, Mr. Prado, for being here. Um, we're really excited to have you here. How do you, uh, how do you feel about being on the podcast? Awesome, guys. I really appreciate the opportunity. We Sweet. appreciate Sweet. it. Yeah, no, it's uh, when 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 you responded back saying, "Yeah, let's go," we were uh, both uh, we were kind of like two schoolgirls, very excited about it. So, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's pretty accurate. Now, I, I, yeah. I loved your book very much. It was it ha pulled me in literally right away. Uh, the way you talked about your childhood and all of that, it just yeah, I was pulled in immediately. Thank you. Thank you. Well, before we kind of get too far into it. Uh, Gresham, would you like to kind of tell people where they can maybe get recaffeinated? Absolutely. So I Came With Fire podcast is proudly sponsored by Red Clover Coffee. Uh, Red Clover Coffee is veteran owned. If you enter our Came With Fire discount code at checkout, you can get 10% off your order. Um, I got it right here. I got their peanut burnt -er with the A10 on the, on the package. Uh, I recommend this one. Uh, their blueberry invasion it's awesome like i said they're veteran owned they donate to a lot of awesome charities you can find the link to them on our instagram page or you can google red clover coffee so we appreciate it red clover and uh, go get some coffee cool are you uh much of a coffee drinker rick absolutely i'm a borderline uh, coffee uh, snob <laughs> coffee <laughs> yeah. snob <laughs> yeah. i am uh, all about good coffee espresso is is my go-to but when I have American coffee, it also has to be good. Yeah. Okay. What's your uh, favorite American coffee you kind of do? Like what kind of brand do you mostly use? You know, I haven't, uh, my wife bought me an espresso machine that does all. It does awesome. single shots, double shots, and it makes the best American coffee. Um, I usually have, uh, you know, in the winter, that's what I drink. It'll be, you know, the fuller cup. And during the summer down here, the espresso gives me the kick without, uh, you know, all the heat. Yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah, you know that makes sense. Gresham, obviously, he drinks a lot of coffee too. Um, I do. I, I'm not so much. I'm more of an energy drink type guy. I think it's just kind of oh, how I grew up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, drink a lot of Red Bulls and Monsters and Bangs. So <laughs> I tried Red Bull once. You tried oh, yeah. it once? Yeah, I thought I was drinking. Uh, um, what do you call it? Radiator fluid. <laughs> <laughs> they do have a. That's what it smells taste. like. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> Sweet man. Well, cool. Uh, Gresham, uh, yeah, I think we'll go in order here. Uh, you actually have the first question. So if you kind of want to hit it out of the park, we can kind of go from there. Cool. So, uh, obviously in the book, you outline really well how the ideology of communism pits hardworking success stories against, uh, those who choose to see their personal failures as the failure of the state to take care of them. I think you outline that really well, just kind of the stories that you're telling at the beginning of the book. Um, you know, the confiscation of your family's business, uh, obviously is extremely terrible. Um, but what would you say to those today who idealize communism and its figureheads like Che and Castro? 
Go live there. Let's start with that. I respect anybody's ideology. You want to be a communist? I have no problem with that. Live in a communist country. You show me one communist country that has improved, benefited from communism, and I'll laugh you. From Russia to Poland to Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, uh, the, the list is endless of people that have dabbled with this stuff, which starts with socialism. You know, that that's the the, right. the, the, the part here. And, and what I try to explain to people is socialism is nothing more than a mask that communists, uh, communists wear to uh, lure you into their lair and then eat mm -hmm. your food. So um, for me, like I said, I respect everybody's opinion, right, left, middle, you know, whatever you want to be. But don't be a communist in the United States, just like you would be able to be a pro-American democratic guy in the Soviet Union or, God forbid, Cuba. That's a good point. Uh, I had a teacher growing up who used to say that communism was just socialism with guns. And uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I agree with that. Less guns with the people, more guns with the government. There you go. Exactly. Yeah. 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 No, I uh, um, obviously I, I joined the Air Force at like 18 right out of high school. Um, and then uh, my first base was in Japan. And uh, um, it was my first time outside the United States. And, you know, Japan's a first world country and everything. So I was like, oh, it's pretty nice, all type of stuff. Um, but a couple of years in, I, I deployed to Oman. And when I got to Oman, I was like, wow, like people live like this. This is like a culture shock. And then a couple of years in, I actually went down to South America. Um, I was uh, deployed to Curacao, um, which is a little island off the coast of Venezuela next to Aruba. Um, you say you've been there, Eric? I, I, Rick? I, I've been to Venezuela. I have not been to Curacao. Okay. Yeah. Curacao is well, pretty nice. Yeah. Curacao is pretty nice. And what, what I was doing there is we were obviously working with uh, – um southern command and uh and um uh what was it border patrol and stuff to just make sure to keep uh, drugs out of um the united states coming from like south america and stuff so that was my main like job but going there and then eventually also deploying to the horn of africa with uh brandon um you kind of start to see how how lucky we are to be an american to be in the united states to have all our rights um, the poorest people in America are richer than like most of the world. So it, it it's pretty interesting, especially when like when I was in Curacao, uh, you would have people who were proud of the way their dirt looked because that's all they had to be proud of. They would sweep their dirt every morning in the front of their like house to make it look pretty. Um, and then you had, you know, people in Kenya um, who were like super um excited about just very small kind of things because that's what they were you know excited and proud about um it, it just blows my mind when you have um, american citizens who will complain about the smallest most ridiculous things when they don't really realize how good they have it absolutely look uh, Ed, the the, uh, the biggest problem we have in the united states is we do not know how good we have it uh, mm -hmm. the american when he or she travels overseas uh, even if you're doing business, you you could go to a crap hole somewhere. You're going to stay in the best hotels. You're going to eat the food that is not going to give you Montezuma's revenge. Uh, you're not going to see the poverty and and the, uh, the the criminal you know criminalization of some areas, like in Africa. I've done a little time in both East and West Africa. Um, 
people do not understand. I had a lady once ask me, she says, well, what, in this conversation, she says, well, you know, I've been to Mexico. And I took a wild guess. I said, no, ma'am, you were in a cruise to Cancun. And she went, right. I said, big difference. And even when you go to a third world country, you, you know, most Americans, even if they go to a third world country on business, they stay in a nice hotel. They're there for a week or two weeks. They don't have to put up with the lines for food, uh, you know, or, or corrupt cops stopping you everywhere, you know, to, to get, uh, get you to uh, pay a fine because you were speeding or whatever it is. So, yeah, we, don't, we do not know how good we have it. And if I was king for a day, you could not graduate from high school unless you did 30 days in some shithole in a third world country. Because you'll come back. You will come back with no iPad, no iPhone. You'll come back and you would be so grateful of every first world problem that you have that uh, it would be better. Yeah. I think one of the best things about being in the military and then seeing it happen to other members of the military is when you get to see the world and you understand that a lot of the problems that we, we think we have in the United States, we're allowed to have these first world problems because we have such a society that supports us so much. You know, We are able to go to a grocery store, we're able to go buy a new phone or go to a movie theater or whatever. And a lot of the, pro the problems in our country today, 100% are first world problems. And if you go to a country where you can't afford food or you can't go to the grocery store and get food, a lot of these other problems would 100% disappear because you can't and you don't have time to deal with first world problems. You gotta worry about where your next meal is coming from or whatever. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah, I was uh, I was making dinner for my wife and I today, and uh, uh, it was like some it was like some potatoes in a special like seasoning, and we had it in the oven. And I open up the oven, and obviously a little heat wave comes out, and it hits the little like fire alarm sensor, and it starts going off. And I was immediately irritated, right? Like, oh great, this is going off. But like that's something so small that irritates me. It, it, that's what this is just an example of like all these things that we have and like i'm mad at the fire alarm potentially going to notify first responders to come help me when you know just in other places they they just they got to figure it out like there's no one to come help them or anything like that so yeah it just kind of goes what you're saying a lot of yeah. countries there that have no idea what 911 is mm -hmm. very true yeah. Yeah, or if there was a 911, they'd be too afraid that the cop would be corrupt and not help them anyways. Exactly. Take advantage of them in their in their bad situation. Happens all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, in your book, uh, Rick. Uh, so I'm I'm a I'm a gun enthusiast. I love firearms, all type of stuff. And uh, in your book, every it seemed like every time you would like start a mission in the book you'd kind of give us your loadout you'd always say i got my 1911 and 45 and stuff like that but there was a certain gun um it was the lady smith revolver you always said you had it down at your ankle um it was like your secondary gun or your backup gun but the way you would explain it in your book it was almost like you had like a love attachment oh, to yeah. it or that you had a. Uh, or that you had like, like it was like your mistress or something. So I was just curious, do you still have the coveted Ladysmith revolver? And if you do, and if it is something special, what was special about it? What made you just always explain in the book that it was like your mistress? Well, you know, it was, unfortunately, it got stolen out of my household goods when, it, when I came back from the Philippines. Ah. Uh, yeah, that along with a whole bunch of other stuff. But the, uh, the thing with the Ladysmith was just the practicality. 
you know, I, I also carried in the earlier days, I used to carry a Walther PPK in my ankle. Mm-hmm. Um, as my sidearm and all the other crap that, that I would have on, I always believe in having a hidden backup weapon. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my world, if you get picked up, you know, most third world countries, if you get in trouble, they, they don't know how to pat you down. They don't know, you know, you may get away with something, a crotch gun or, or, or uh, but in the Philippines, because of the heat and, and the, the, uh, the humidity, regular weapons really suffer. So this, this was a stainless steel lady Smith, five shots. And, um, as a matter of fact, there's a, there's a, a little vignette in, in the, uh, in the book where I was, this is when, uh, after the first Gulf war, uh, we were chasing the Iraqis They were quite prominent there in the Philippines. And actually they tried to bomb one of our, one of our facilities. But, um, when I would meet, uh, volunteers or people that I wanted to try to approach about finding out more about the Iraqis, I would send them to the local five-star hotel. They had two or three that were high-end. They all had metal detectors. No, actually, they had one. They would wand you. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. And I, I noticed that they never wand you be, be, below your knees. So I, I would go, you know, clean from, from the waist up, but I would have 238s. One in each ankle with two strips of five rounds in case I need a reload. I was pretty confident I was one of the few guys in that place that had a gun. So, uh, because, <laughs> you know, awesome. whoever I was eating is going to get, you know, searched just the same. So, yeah. Yeah. But well, it sucks that you lost that firearm. Um, that, that's, that's, that really, that really sucks. I, I, I would be upset if, you know, I lost right. one of my firearms during household goods or whatever. Especially um, you have a historical attachment to it because I was like I said that was my, you know that that's if you if you're pulling that ankle piece you're in a world of poop. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Did you right. ever did you ever need to use your secondary firearm or pull it out? No, uh, I never did. Uh, I have pulled my primary weapon a couple of times, but um, yeah, I haven't gotten into uh, that thing that where something malfunctions or you could run out of your ammo and you have to start digging for your backup gun. But uh, I'm a firm believer in it. Nice. Nice. You had something you wanted to say, Brandon? No, I was just going to say that, you know, in your line of work, if you have to pull your pistol on somebody, then you're you're taking a lot into your hands and not just your life. You know, you're, you could be compromising yourself and your position. You could be you know giving away whatever you're working on. There's a lot that goes into that. So knowing you have that pistol at your side and what it means to pull it, it it's, you know, of course you have a strong attachment to it. Yeah, you know, you, and, and you hit it right on the spot. But a lot of people, and that was the reason I wrote the book. You know, the reason I wrote the book was because there's such fantasy, negative fantasy about what the CIA is all about. And most importantly, how it demeans my my colleagues, all who are great American patriots. Right. You know, so it, it's just it just irks me to, to, to see that, you know, prospect out there being thrown out. So but for 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 me, you know, the uh, getting to the attachment of things because they are part of who you are. Um, it's it's a very natural thing. Uh, you know, I, I'm not a gun guy in the sense of collecting guns. To me, they're tools. But I have one of each niche weapon that I need. As a matter of fact, I just ordered a Beretta 300 shotgun. Classic. Because uh, that is that is hot, that's hot stuff. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just uh, I recently got a a lever action, a model. Um, model x big boy henry rifle so it's all like black black and sleek and then i had to take it and i made it um i modernized this it, so it's got like m-lock rails and a whole bunch of stuff so 
like a a modern uh, lever action. I'm like a futuristic cowboy, so it's kind of cool. That is that is real. But you know, my my dad was a cowboy, and uh, I have dozens of pictures of being like one, two, three, five years old, dressed as a cowboy. So that's very dear to me. I love horses. I and uh, I own uh, I own a little cabin in Georgia, and what I have there is I have a replica late 1800s um, Winchester kind of a weapon in, oh, wow. in a mm-hmm. cult. And below it, there's a single action, you know, revolver and they're all loaded and they all work. So that's, they're, they're oh, wow. more than just, yeah. Oh, hell yeah. There isn't a single unloaded gun in my house. Makes Smart. sense. Yeah. My kids, my kids shoot better than I do. So what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's awesome. Do they, uh, do they, uh, do they shoot better than you because maybe you're maybe you might be losing your edge a little bit with age or is it just uh you just taught them too well actually they can't oh they can't <laughs> <laughs> not with handguns so, you know my, yeah. my uh both, both my boys are former military or, or military one is active duty uh, uh army uh special forces mm-hmm. other the other one is uh did six years in the air force and uh he became a doctor in physical therapy and he's now working at the va so um, they started awesome. shooting when they were seven years old, uh, martial arts when they were five. Um, but uh, when it comes to the handgun, I, I still got an edge on them. But especially my, my army guy with, with the long gun, he's, he's pretty damn good. So nice. you bring up, my, uh, uh, and I know you, you talked before about uh, martial arts and get, you know, doing that growing up. There's so many lessons about martial arts that you can take out and apply to regular life. Um, some of the, those lessons, they have a lot to do with like mental and then physical toughness. Um, what would you say is something that you've taken out of martial arts and maybe inserted, inserted into your, um, when you were employed by the CIA, something maybe like mental, the mental toughness factor that you get from martial arts? You know, I, I really think that, uh, God puts us on this earth for a mission, but I agree. he also prepares you for it. Uh, my childhood, you, you alluded to my childhood. That's not a typical childhood. I got to witness violence and communism before I was 10 years old. So as you progress yeah, in, in your life with, 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 with age, it, it just, it, it really makes a difference for what you want to do, you know. So I, I, for me, you know, with the martial arts, uh, I started in a style called Kyokushin which is a very, very hard Japanese. By the way, I studied Japanese for 14 months, so I don't know if you picked up any while you were over there. But um, My, my wife's a... actually Japanese, so oh, I so picked up uh, at least she... one. Yeah, <laughs> I got at least one word down. <laughs> I, it was a time when I had a two-level in Japanese, believe it or not, but um, wow. you know, I never had to serve there long-term. But, but, you know, back to the martial arts thing, you know, you learn not only how to do violence, but how to avoid having to do violence. Because when you keep your ego in check, um, it, it is completely different. Uh, it, it helped me in the agency because, like you very smartly stated, you know, the minute in my agency that you do this, your mission is compromised. Right. You're done. Even if nobody sees you, even if you get away with it, your mission is done. And that's the best case scenario. Mm-hmm. So it, it's that confidence that, look, I can take care of myself. I don't have to confront somebody just because they're giving me dirty looks because I know I can kick their ass. So why even bother? You know, it's, right. it's like uh, I'm, I'm, I'm more of a pain in the ass. If, you, if, I, if I'm with my wife or something like that, I'm by myself. But you could call me whatever the hell you want. 
I'll just keep walking. You put a hand on me, that's a different story. So I think that that whole, you know, started early, you know, with the, the inculcation of, you know, my, my dad brought me up. Like I said, my dad was a cowboy. So that cowboy ethos for him is you guys, guys have to be tough. You have to defend your family. You have to keep your cool and, and so on. And then the martial arts re, uh, reinforced that. My, uh, I was blessed that my first uh, two uh, martial arts instructors uh, were both police officers. They were both combat Marines. Uh, one was Leo Thalicetus was a World War II Pacific um, a Marine. And the other one, Jim Alfano, who was very dear to me. He was my, my first real sensei. Uh, Jim was a Vietnam era uh, force recon uh, guy. And uh, yeah, Raider or whatever they called them back then. And um, they were both extremely good, but they were also extremely you know strict with us. I would tell you, I've been in the martial arts since I was 15. The toughest test I ever had was when I when I went for my green belt at the age of 16. Three days, he about killed. But Man. you know, when you come out of that, that is uh, that's part of that forging of the metal that uh, got me through other things, including you know pararescue. I, I I actually thought I was, you know, a pretty tough kid. I was in pretty good shape. Uh, you know, I could lift a lot of weights, and you know, I could fight. I got the pararescue, man. I got in that pipeline. And I was humbled for the first few weeks. I was puking every day, and you know, uh, you conquer that too. So yeah, it, it all it all it, it's all part of the melding or, or, or the forging of of your metal as you go along. I think that's cool that you're saying that basically it gave you a sense of confidence and self assurance in yourself, so that you know you don't have to react. It's kind of helping you temper your ego, like you said. And when you talked about what the the pararescue pipeline did to you immediately. It makes me think of uh, somebody else we've had on the podcast who's a pararescueman as well. And uh, he said the same thing, you know, that you get there and you think you're tough shit. And then, you know, you show up and <laughs> they, they humble you really quick. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, so that's I've never heard somebody not say that before that has been through that. So, you know, it, there, there's, a, again, a vignette in the book that, that really typifies that. I, I, I'm not known for taking crap from people. So, but we had a terrorist safe house that we had bugged. And in order to get the, uh, the sound uh, correct, I had to do what's called a path loss test. I had to walk around the block where that safe house was, which was a real shit neighborhood, with this device that I'm pumping out a signal and the techs are up there and, and the observation posts and listening posts, tweaking what frequencies we're going to program this crap from. And... I, I hadn't bathed in two days. I had, you know, I hadn't shaved. I had a little vest on, had my browning on the side, and I had a buddy of mine about a block behind me uh, with a shotgun. And as I literally, as I walked by the front door of this safe house, which we knew it belonged to a lady, but the the, uh, the terrorists would come in. The the the, the, the terrorists, the local terrorists, would come in and say, "Get the hell out! We're going to have a meeting," and they would just hang out at her place. So I'm walking right in front of the door. The door opens. Five of these guys walk out. They got a soccer ball in their hand, and they bump into me. Oh! And they shove me around. They start giving me a ration of shit. My first instinct was, there's five of them. I got 15 rounds in this thing. You're done. Three but then I thought, what's more important? You know, getting the mission done. So I did right. the, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry. Don't hurt me kind of thing. and walked off. And... When I finished, I felt really proud because th three or four months later, we busted all their asses and threw them in jail. Right. So, pay back awesome. bill. Hell yeah. 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 <laughs> That'd be yeah, really so you, intense. Yeah. So, you, 
<laughs> you kept your cool there and everything. Uh, in your book, there was that one incident when you were training, um, and uh, you were you were in. I think you were sitting in the back seat. And it was a training exercise, and you had your friend in the front seat, and he had like the window cracked, and he was like contact left, and then you all just got out and annihilated everyone. And then like later on, the the um the trainer was like, I was just asking if you had like money or something. And in the book, you were like, I was so upset. And you're kind of going back to when to draw the gun, when to not draw the gun. So that, technically a, that mission was compromised. So yeah, exactly. And and the yeah. thing was, and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a firm believer in consequences. You know, when uh, I'm very fair, I would say, please and thank you. But the, the ethos in, in any team that I ever formed was when you screw up, you stand up, you know, we sit there with then, you know, you, you may get your ass shoot out or you might be given some guidance. Then you grab a beer and you clink and, and, and you, you do better the next time. So I, I, absolutely. That, that one incident is, is, is a very good example of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we talked a little bit, you said how, when you were going to become a PJ, it humbled you real quick and stuff. Um, I know you were a PJ to reserve unit, and it was only for about four years after you completed all your training. Um, so you barely touched on your time as a PJ in your book. I know the book is also mostly focused on humanizing the CIA um, for the American public. But was there any, like, um, fondest memories of while you were a PJ or kind of unique stuff that um, you really enjoyed about it? Uh, and I was just kind of um, any worthwhile sto stories you want to tell us? You know, absolutely. I, I, I am, I'm, I'm a humble pararescueman. I earned my beret, but I had very few, um, you know, rescue you missions or anything like that. I did a total of eight years in the reserves, the last four with the 20 special forces uh, up in Fort Lauderdale, a C company. Okay. Uh, I never go, I never went through the Q, Q course because the agency recruited me um, before my, my turn came up to go to the course. Hmm. But for me, pararescue, and I say this at every chance I get, and I'll say it now, I would have not gotten into CIA if it hadn't been for pararescue because I started in the agency as a combat medic. Um, they, I applied and uh, when they saw my background and the fact that I had been write, writing rescue in Miami in the seventies for six years, they went like, this guy knows his shit. So they brought me over and interviewed me. I showed them what I could do. And, and I was working contract. I would come in for, you know, for, for different periods and um, that's how the agency, when the Contra program started, when Reagan took over and decided to declare, declare uh, war on communism, um, they said, remember that Cuban kid, you know, the PJ, blah, blah, blah. There'd never been a PJ in, the, in, in CIA to begin with. Oh, and wow. I'm very proud of that. I'm, I'm the guest speaker at a re reunion this year in, in September. Uh, and this that is exactly what I want to highlight. The fact that as humble as my, my roots are in pararescue, um, I've honored them throughout the agency and, and from you guys have read the book, the, 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 uh, the, the mission that we did in Puerto Cabezas and then the rescue that I pulled off in Corinto, mm -hmm. that rescue was textbook PJ shit. I was yeah. thinking that the whole time yeah. reading that. He passed out of a helicopter out of over 30 feet because the pilots wouldn't go any lower, right. um, to get your guys out, um, and, and bring them out that, that was textbook you know i could have been I, I could have been an 18 delta i could have been anything else and i probably would not have had the tools that i had to to do my low and slow casting and going in there and doing all my shit so yeah 
it just goes back exactly to what you said about God gives you a purpose and then puts you in the position to fulfill that purpose because without that training, you and that rescue and that was mission, I would love to hear you talk more about that mission. I mean, what you did rescuing those guys that were kind of stranded out there in the, the reeds and all of that. Um, but you were the right and the only person for that job. And so it just goes back to exactly what you said. I, I'm a firm believer in that. You know, uh, um, I've, a lot of people say, how do you keep your cool under this stuff? First of all, you got to believe. you got to believe that what you're doing is really important. But, but that particular mission for me was so meaningful for several reasons. First of all, you know, I fought communism in five different incarnations. This was my first. And very special to me because it's the same monster that destroyed my first country. And here I am now, you know, cutting off those, some of those tentacles from that, from that damn thing. But uh, the first thing that was very important to me is these were my guys. I trained them. They were lobster divers. I trained them to be, you know, combat divers. I trained them how to blow shit up. I trained them in this. There's no way. When, when I went to the base chief, Leon, who's a super good guy, we're friends to this day, I went up to him and said, say, hey, chief, I'm not letting my guys out there. I wasn't asking him for permission to go get them. So I'm not letting my guys out there. Mm -hmm. So the two boats that went to do a mission and, and everything went um, belly up there. Um, they were coming out. Unfortunately, the boats were very fast, but also very unreliable. Mm -hmm. And they tend to foul up and everything else. So one got conked out right, right after coming out of Corinto, and it was in the mangroves. The other one made it to uh, the center of Gulf of Conseca, still in, in, in Nicaraguan waters. And they were just like a bobbing cork out there. And uh, so I went to my, my, my guy, and he said, so what are you going to do? I said, well, Here's what we're going to do. So get me some rope. So I made stable rigs, which is what you hang out of a helicopter. I'm not describing it for you guys because I know you know where it is. But for your audience, you know, it's, they're actually straps that come out of a helicopter with a seat. And you can come in, put people on there, and, and you take off. Mm -hmm. So I, I, you know, field expedient, uh, uh, you know, uh, four, five actually, um, stable rigs. Then I had uh, fuel. I had water, I had tools, spark plugs, and everything else. And uh, I also had two sticks of C4 fully ready, it strapped to my chest with plastic so it wouldn't get wet. And um, I you know, cast it out of the helicopter. And, you know, our thing's supposed to be 15 feet, 15 knots. These, these pilots were not water pilots. They were great pilots, but they were not water pilots. They were not. When they told me, get the hell out, I kept going like this. And they said, get the hell out. I said, I got it. It was a very long drop. But, uh, you know, it was it, it was classic pararescue. Luckily, we were able to restart the boat and and uh, we brought it back with the guys, got them a fix. I was on my by then probably thirty six hours of no sleep, and we went right back out to get the uh, the second boat and Sandinistas. You know, they they had figured out something was going on there. You know, we had an aircraft on the plant in, in the ground. They knew a helicopter had come into their AO, so um, they they were waiting for us and they tried to find us. But uh, we were able to uh, circumvent that too. That's amazing. Genuinely, yeah, you you were one hundred percent of the right person for that job at the right time. Blessed. And, uh, definitely. Uh, so growing up, I had, you know your book isn't the first time I've heard about the Sandinistas and what what happened you know in in South America with a lot of the Marxist regimes moving in. But one thing that has always been for certain is is just the violence and the the terrible carnage that they wreaked on people. You know what I mean? So you getting to see that firsthand, um, 
you know, what is something specifically that you know you can remember or recall, um, you know, situation maybe that you had firsthand in stopping something like that? Well, you know, the, the first the exposure, you know, like I said, I, I was probably seven or eight years old when when the uh, Castro um, was revolution, for lack of a better word, was going on. And literally at the age of seven or eight, I, I saw people get shot. I saw a guy fire an automatic weapon two feet, two feet in front of my face because I was standing by the window like an idiot trying to see right. what was going on. Didn't notice there was this guy with an automatic weapon below me. So I saw that violence. But the violence that really registered was uh, maybe a year or so later when we decided to move to Havana to get out. As soon as we drove into the city, there were three guys hanging from trees with signs around the necks that said kind of revolutionaries. You know, my dad's business was confiscated. So, um, you know, I came out of this uh, to, to this country by myself. My parents couldn't get out. And uh, I ended up in an orphanage in Pueblo, Colorado. And again, you, you talk about stealing your metal. You're in, in I mean, Pueblo is a blue collar town now. Imagine back in 1962, right? Uh, you know, the only place you could go was rodeos, and I love rodeos, so I, I, I was a happy camper. But, you know, it just that, that was another stealing of the metal kind of thing. But I think that uh, to the point of fighting communism, uh, of course, I was chief of the Koreas. I've worked against the Koreans, you know, and I've worked against everybody else too, Chinese, everybody else. But the first one was that Contra program, because for me, those individuals on the ground were the first, the, the people that I would have liked to have been it, when, when it, old enough to try to do it in Cuba. Right. You know, I, I, um, I lived in, in the camps. I, I was in, 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 the, in the Honduran border with Nicaragua for three years. And the first 14 months of that, of that uh, mission, I was the only CIA officer allowed to go into the camps because I was wow. there as a Honduran maiden. And uh, I could play the part of a local. I was Hispanic. I knew the language. And that's why the book is called Black Ops. This was a very successful black op where the U.S. hand has to be hidden. A lot of people do not understand that. You know, uh, this is why when you compromise something, it's not an op anymore. It's a, it's a screw up. Right. So, you know, I, I trained these guys. I, I, I slept in a jungle hammock Monday through Friday for three years. And, and I never woke up in the morning not wanting to be there or anything else. I loved it because after training all day at night, I would grab a cup of coffee and I'd go to different uh, fireplace because they would have the little fireplaces going in different places. And I would sit down and ask them, I said, why are you here? Mm -hmm. What's driving you to, you know, eat this muck and, and get eaten by mosquitoes and leishmaniasis and everything is snakes, you name it, that was out there. And not to mention Sandinistas, which were, you know, we were pretty much in the same neighborhood. And yeah. every single one of the people that I asked that had a story. Every single one of them. None, none had read Marx or Lenin or some even didn't know who Castro was. But they all had a story. They raped my daughter. They oh my burned God. down my church. They beat up my priest. Now, they, they stole my, they, constricted, they conscripted my 15-year-old son and he got killed. Uh, so th every single one of these individuals, men and women, because there were several women, quite, quite a few women in the camps, um, th their, their, their purpose was so pure. There was no fluff in anything. To them, they were willing to die. They were willing to live under those conditions. You know, mud and, 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 and infested with every bug out in, in the jungles out there 
for the hope that they could give their parents, uh, their sons and daughters, some kind of freedom in the future. It doesn't get any more noble than that, as far as I'm concerned. For sure. I couldn't agree more. It's something that you guys immediately have that camaraderie right off the bat. The fact that you guys are all there, it's from the heart. This isn't, you're not somebody who's, you know, working or out there for money. You're not somebody who doesn't believe in it's being forced. You guys have that automatic, you know, um, brotherhood, that shared relation there, that camaraderie, like I said, um, that's pretty amazing. And I feel like it's, it's pretty unique too, that you guys had that together. It must've been something that could keep you going while you're out there in such, you know, horrid conditions. Yeah. Like I said, I never, I never complained about my conditions. First of all, you know, I, I'll eat whatever is out there to eat and, you know, and, right. and I did pay the price. I got medevac once I had giardia, dysentery, amoeba, all, all in one place. Damn. But, uh, yeah, it, it, well, you're eating out of banana leaves out there in the mesquite. You know, they would serve the food in the banana leaves, and it actually right. makes sense because, you know, the plates are not going to be as clean as that banana leaf, right? So that, sure. You know, but you know, it 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 was. I mean, um, the motivation was always there, and I will tell you, um, if if I had to name one thing that really lifted my spirits was when we blew up Portugal bases, when we were able to put that kind of a black eye on the Sandinistas. Um, and when I saw the overhead for the first time ever seeing satellite overhead a couple of days later at the, at the base of the big ass hole that we put in that thing, uh, I'm going like, yeah. there you go. Paybacks are a bitch. Cause you know, 1962, you put a hole in my family. So now I'm going to put a hole in you. So, yeah. Yeah. That's gotta be so motivating. Like seeing that, like we did that. That was us. Dude, That's awesome. Yeah. What a unique yeah. feeling. I think I think also you're talking about how you know you 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 went from fireplace to fireplace and you spoke with them. I think that's just a because you obviously throughout your career you rose to very high positions. Um, you know, eventually becoming the chief of counterterrorism and all that type of stuff. But or very early on, you were exhibiting like great leadership qualities. A great leader will go around and you know ask their people why are they there, what are they doing. So. Um, like Brandon has been saying, you were definitely the right person at the right at the right time, and I, I think you were the the people that they needed at that time to be able to fight um, and and rise up for their causes because they saw what a great leader and um, how invested you were with them. Yeah, you know, I, I, I it's funny you you used the word hero earlier on, and I really appreciate that. I take it as a compliment, but you got to understand, guys. Guys like me, we grew up in the shadow of giants, okay? When I went to pararescue, my main instructor at the end was a guy named Wayne Fisk. You can Google him. Yep. She passed Sergeant Wayne Fisk. Three Silver Stars, Maya Guez, Sante Raid, you know, uh, four, four tours. In, in the, and as a matter of fact, I was uh, just 10 days ago or, or so, uh, I was at... Um, at SOCOM, where he got presented with the uh, Bull Simons Award, uh, wow. big to do, you know. So when when you have somebody, and to this day he's one of my best friends. But when you have that kind of individual, it, it keeps you humble, and it keeps you centered. Uh, Dewey Claridge, um, one of my best friends, which unfortunately we lost a, a few months back, is was Wah. Billy Wah was a legendary Green Beret, uh, Mag V Sog, you know, parachuted behind enemy lines, cut people's throats. I mean, he he done it all. Jump uh, nuclear, you know, nuclear backpacks in Area 51 for practice, and wow. uh, then 
agency and you know he captures the jackal and he makes book on on uh, Osama bin Laden and he was a dear friend of mine yeah. so when you when you have those kind of people as your role models you learn a lot you learn their style you you learn that even they never I I never have heard Wayne Fisk or, or, or Billy say you know I was hot shit you know I I did everything that anybody could none of them if if you went to Wayne's because he's the one that's still alive. If you went into Wayne's door tomorrow and you knocked on, he go, "We need you." He would cowboy up and he'd be right there for you because we we do not feel that we've done enough. You can never do enough good because there's too much evil out there. Yeah, wow. And you definitely saw a lot of it, so you you would you definitely have the broader picture of how much evil actually exists out there. So that that's a powerful sentence message coming straight from you. Well, I, and you know, you're, you're being very humble, right? Of course, like you said, but I mean, I, I truly wish there were more people in the world like you and like people like Wayne Fisk, because there aren't enough people doing good all the time who feel as if they haven't done enough for good. Yeah. You know, it, it, the, the sad thing is like going back to, we don't know how good we have it. We also don't know, you know, what, what the prices that are paid for the freedoms that we enjoy. You know, so it, sure. yeah, absolutely. You know, when when you have guys uh, like Wayne Fisk being your mentor or Billy Waugh being your mentor, um, they 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 ground you. They really ground you to to the realities of the sacrifices that you have to continue to be making. You know, uh, one of the things that I said at at, at Wayne's uh, ceremony because I was one of two speakers on his behalf. The other one was, was legendary PJ uh, uh, Ray Colon Lopez. And, and one of the things that I mentioned is you've got to understand that at any given time, 2% of the population in the United States serves in the military. Mm -hmm. 2%. There's another 2% that become law enforcement, and I respect the hell out of them. I work a lot with cops. But 2% join the, 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 the military. Out of that 2%, 1% makes it to SOF, Special Operations Forces. And then even in Special Operations Forces, there's only one Billy Waugh. And there's only one Wayne Fist. There's a lot of guys out there that are great. Uh, the, the only thing that, that I would put in contrast for you, though, guys, is that I taught at Fort Bragg. Uh, it was Advanced Special Operations and Tactics uh, uh, course. I can't tell you what it was because it's classified, but it was a lot of fun. I did that for seven years. No and the, for me, was the pace sucked. Uh, and, and living in Fayetteville is not exactly, you know, I, you know, I live near the beach and I have a cabin in the mountains why why the hell would i be in Vietnam, right um but it was it was the students and it was the instructors i worked with instructors that had four five six tours combat tours they had bullet holes in them and they raised beautiful families god loving going to church they bring the kids to work you know for picnics and all that other stuff and and they would get called. They would come in the office like a, like, like a kid at Christmas. Hey, I'm de deploying to Syria tomorrow. This is great, man. I'm going back. And you sit there and you go, wow. Wow. Yeah. Uh, the reason I kept doing that was because after, I've never had a civilian job in my life after high school. You know, I went into pararescue. From there to Metro Rescue, I was still in the reserves when I got into the agency. Then mm -hmm. the agency, Blackwater, I was doing the same crap. Uh, but just for better money. But, um, uh, you know, it's, it's just at the end of the day, you look back and you go, 
wow, what a great amount of opportunities. And I'm just very proud about the only thing that I would tell you that I, I will take credit for is that I never had hesitation of paying the price of admission. I went into a mission with, a, I mean, my wife, my kids, would they would come out of my mind the minute I got in that car because right. everything it, it had to be blocked out. And I think that the bottom line for that is you have to believe in what you're doing. If you don't believe in what you're doing, risk becomes very, very, very tentative. Right. But if you believe in what you're doing, you, you, you're going to, you're going to do the full, take the full measure. So. Yeah. You brought up uh, chief Cologne Lopez. Um, he was actually my command chief when I was at Kadena air base. Um, <laughs> so this is like 10 years ago. Um, and so I was, I was a newer senior airman and I was a PTL. Uh, so, you know, I conduct the PT tests and stuff and, uh, um, I'm sitting there, it's early in the morning and we're checking people in and in comes the command chief, Chief Master Sergeant Colon Lopez here, here for his annual PT test. Right. And, uh, so he goes in and he signs in and, um, he was like, he's like, I'm going to partner with you. And I was like, roger that chief. So we're sitting there and we're, we're partners and stuff. And uh, we're about to do sit-ups. And he looks at me and he goes, make sure you count the right ones. And I was like, roger that, chief. And so he's going to do his sit-ups. And he was, like, intentionally doing them wrong. It was a test. He wanted to see if I would call him out on if he's doing it right or not. And so, you know, I was like, sir, you didn't, you didn't go all the way down. And he was like, oh, okay, like this. And I was like, sir, you didn't go all the way down. That's still, like, two. And then finally, he was like, I like that. And then he just knocked out like 80 of them in a minute because he's chilly. <laughs> Lopez. Yeah. And then and then he did the same thing with push-ups. And I was like, sir, you know, you're not breaking 90. And he's like, oh, so like this. And then he knocked out like 80 of those as well. And then uh, it was for the run. <laughs> he, he comes over to me. He's all like, you ready for the run, Smith? And I was like, uh, chief, yeah, I'll, I'll run. But I don't think I could keep up with you. And he's like, oh, well, just try. And so we're running and I made like half a lap with him and then he was gone. And I couldn't, I couldn't keep up and it, it humbled me. You know, I'm like a 20 year old young man who was relatively fit and stuff. And this, I don't, I don't know what his age was, but he's a chief at the time. So he's got to be late thirties, early forties at this time. And he smoked everyone. He ran like a mile and a half in like eight fifty, and got his hundred on his PT test. And uh, but he coined he coined me afterwards. He gave me a coin. He said, "I appreciate oh, wow. um, how you didn't uh, how you didn't let my rank or my position get in the way of you being a good airman." He was like, "You still kept the the rules and regulations in mind. You didn't let me get away with just skating by, not doing the right thing." I was like, "Oh, thanks, Chief." And it's funny because he's all about carnivore leadership and his silver bullets and. Um, his coin, it looks like a Jurassic Park, like T-Rex. And it says like carnivore leader on it. And on the back, it says like Chief Colon Lopez. It, it's in my office, so I don't have it here. But it's it was a really nice moment. And then he was in charge of the Horn of Africa. Uh, he was the chief of the Horn of Africa when uh, uh, Brandon and I were, were there. Uh, we didn't see him or anything, but it's just he's still trucking along, just doing great things. So. Yeah, he still is. He's going to be retiring soon. Uh, as a matter of fact, at the uh, pararescue reunion, he's the guest speaker for the rodeo, and I'm the guest speaker for for, for the event. And uh, it'll be nice hanging out with him. Uh, Wayne is going to make it up there. He promised, 
So uh, it, it is. Uh, but you know, they, there's there's very few people that can say that they're they're uh, Ray Colon Lopez's guys, but there there's several others. There's a there's a young young PJ. He he just retired by the name of uh, Ivan Ruiz, okay. and Ivan. Um, you're talking Air Force Cross kind of mission, right? Yeah. So I was, I went to his, uh, well, first he got uh, inducted into the uh, Jolly Green Hall of Fame as the first time that the, uh, the the Jolly Green Association gave the award to a single person. It had always wow. been to a team. It had always wow. been to helos and, and this kind of crap. And, um, he had done uh, he had done a mission solo that 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 merited that. So for that mission, they first put him in for a silver star. Then the the secretary of the Air Force she said, "No, this deserves better." So now we're going to his you know Air Force Cross, and uh, it was really a great ceremony. I go back to brag about a month later, and uh, I always started my you know when I introduced myself you know I always start out with as you know I was a pararescue NCO, and then I went to this, and then I went to that, and, I, and this uh, uh, Green Beret captain comes up to me at the end uh, when we were in the halls, and he says, uh, he says, hey, sir, you know, I'm, I'm not blowing smoke up your ass, but I will tell you the best warrior I've ever worked with was a PJ. And I don't know why, why, why I said, I said, are you talking about uh, Ivan Ruiz? He went, yeah. I said, yeah, I was just at his ceremony. He was on the ground. He was the uh, a part of a uh, um, they were targeting a HVT, you know, high value target uh, house. And he was the PJ, the token PJ in the group. And they got hit coming right in. They got they got cleaned up and okay. two guys went on right in front of him. He pulled them out of harm's way under fire. Patched them up while shooting. And then when the rest of the team came up, he went in the house with them and he killed like six guys. And this Holy this shit. this guy was there. He says, "I know who Ivan Ruiz is. I know that I'm here. Many of us are here because a guy like Ivan Ruiz. So, it, it all that stuff keeps you humble, man. I mean, you know, it really has sure. to. Yeah, it really Tru does. Truly walking in the shadows of giants. Absolutely. Um, so we'll kind of shift gears here a little bit. Um, you you left Cuba. Uh, right, uh, very young, um, came to the United Pan States program. stuff. Yep, uh, Peter Pan program, all that, all that. Um, have you ever um, gone back? Have you ever gone back to Cuba as like a tourist to like visit your hometown to kind of see what it looks like today? Um, I know, like the U.S. a couple of years ago, we started kind of like somewhat trading with them again, and then you know relationships are okay today. But have you ever gone back and kind of seen it? Well, you you you're thinking like an American, okay? I am. I am. Like an American is somebody that could come to the United States and they could be a diehard communist and nobody's going to mess with them. Can you imagine if I set foot in Cuba? They know who I am. Even even before the book, they knew who I was. I've worked yeah. every season serving senior officer, and imagine the propaganda that they could milk. Former Cuban national CIA spy caught doing drugs, dealing drugs, put an ounce of coke in my suitcase. I'm screwed for 20 years in Cuba. Yep. So is is do I want to go? Absolutely. My wife is also Cuban born. And, and um, I, there's nothing that I would love more than to take our three kids and even even grandkids and show them where we lived, where our grandparents were. 
you know, what our beaches were like, what our mountains were like. Um, but I, I, until there's a full change of government there, there's no way that I could risk not only me, but my family. It, it, it's not going to happen. It's not even viable. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's unfortunate because, you know, that was, that was your home. That's where you grew up and stuff. So, um, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm a, that, that's kind I'm of American, I'm American 100%, but I'd never forget mm-hmm. my roots because that's, you know, that, that that's where I was born. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> Let's see here. Um, so when you, you we talked earlier about how you said you drew your firearms before. Uh, in the book, you talk about uh, a point where you were walking um there was a group coming up and it was the people who could do the quick draw really fast and they they could shoot very quickly and then get out of there um you obviously drew your firearm for that and you just kind of held them at gunpoint while still walking up and everything um with that experience and the stare down um with a hit squad set up to whack you and your guys uh, could you tell us more about that can maybe go in a little more detail like what was um you said you had like tunnel vision and stuff but do you remember more details about that you maybe didn't put in the book or? Yeah, I don't know. You know, it's um, it's one of those things where training came, comes in um, and discipline comes in. There's a lot of people that I got a lot of training, but they don't have the discipline to maintain and and, and own up to that to that uh, you know the, the inconvenience of doing things the right way. And mm-hmm. it was was in that had gone. We were working with the Filipinos, and this was an MPA um, New People's Army assassins were called sparrows and they were killing the crap out of our americans at subic and at, especially at clark air force base and these guys they, they would carry a 45 1911 a1 in their crotch no holster they would hold it up with their left hand and what they would do is they would pop the gun up shoot you put it away and walk and everybody looks at gee this guy just got shot then when they look around these guys were gone they were ghosts mm-hmm. So one had been captured and they actually, you can Google that. It, it actually have it out there where you can Google it. And they shows the guy that made, made a deal so he could demonstrate the kind of stuff that they do. So we went, long day was some, you know, end of the week and we went to have a couple of beers and a sandwich before retiring. And we walk out of the place and the first two guys that come out were Filipino green, you know, special forces from the, from the army. Two captains, hard as woodpecker lips, they didn't see anything. Two of our techs, who have training, came out, same thing. They were still thinking about the dancing girl and the, the beer. And I walked out last, and, and my buddy Davis uh, was right in front of me, a good friend of mine. Fortunately, I lost him last year. But um, all of a sudden, I see three guys, and they're in a huddle like this, and they're talking. And as soon as I walk out, we walk out. They make one guy made eye contact. The other and the three of them get side by side. They start walking right in front of us. The guys on the outside both had their hands in their left pocket, and they're staring you down. So I drew my weapon. Now this is when you're talking about tunnel vision. When that bolus mm-hmm. of, of adrenaline kicks, you know I couldn't hear shit. My my you know, Davis might have been going like, "Holy shit!" What I never heard a thing. All I could see was these three guys. Now, if if we're if we're if I walk out of a restaurant and you're just walking around and I and I do this and I put a gun on you, your reaction is going to be like, "Whoa, wait, man, what's what's going on here? What did I do?" Kind of shit. These guys didn't even blink. 
So I, I drew my weapon. I'm, I'm watching him. I'm making eye contact. I'm looking at him, looking at him hard. And the guy in the middle just looks and goes like, I'll get you next time. And I'm going like, no, you ain't. Yeah. Literally, you walk right past attention. Well, but you know, the, the moral of the story here, guys, and your, your gun guys, is I don't give a shit if you're quick draw McGraw. If you're reacting to a gun, you are already in a world of crap. So awareness, you know, I honestly believe that if, if Davis and I had not noticed this, um, we would, you and I would not be talking. When I know Davis was a um, Davis was a Vietnam vet, uh, infantry decorated guy, so he was you know he was a tough dude. And when when I finally you know lowered my weapon, breathed and looked around, and you know your vision starts to open up a little bit. Um, Davis was trying to light a cigarette, and his hand was like this, not from fear, yeah, but just adrenaline. Mm -hmm. And he looks he at me, he's on goes, juice. Yeah, oh yeah, he he was like his eyes were a bunch. So he looks at me, he says. You saw that, right? I said, I, I pull out my gun too. He said, oh, I didn't see you. You know, because again, he had the same thing, tunnel vision and, and everything else. Um, needless to say, my guys, I couldn't chew out the Filipinos because it's their country. But my guys mm. got thoroughly, thoroughly, you know, heels locked there because um, if we'd been around differently, um, you know, we, we probably wouldn't have made it. You know, you got three guys that can shoot and six guys that got their hands in their pockets you know, it's easy picking, you know. For, mm -hmm. Yeah. So the these sparrows, um, are these the same group of people that are responsible for um, the assassination of, of James Rowe? Well, Nick Rowe. Uh, Nick was, um, Nick Rowe. A, yeah, Nick Rowe was a colonel, uh, Green Beret, legendary, escaped prison by killing a guard, walked out of Vietnam kind of shit. The guy's incredible, was incredible. He got assassinated by the MPA, um, probably about six or eight months before I got there. And so when, when I went, when we were in the Philippines, the MPA was in the city. They, they, he was killed right, right in Manila, uh, car ambush. Um, you know, the, the, the old golden BB story, you know, the, the, the car was armored. The, the, uh, mm -hmm. the, the driver didn't know what he was doing. So he hit the brake when a car cut him off and guys hop out and start shooting at the gun and the car. And there was a seam in the back between the windows, one single bullet, enter that vehicle and hit him in the back of the head. So were they assassins? Absolutely. Were there sparrows? I don't know. Um, but that, that was, that was the ambiance there at the time. And, and uh, shortly after that, they killed uh, this, and these, and this was the sparrows up in uh, at Clark air force base two two uh, airmen that were out, you know, waiting for a taxi or something in Angela city. And all of a sudden, somebody comes behind them and go pop, pop, and they walk off. And here's two dead guys, and everybody's looking like, what the hell happened? So they, they were very lethal, but they were also running around with impunity. So uh, we, we helped the Filipinos quite a bit. And I, I tell you, I, I love working with those guys. They were extremely, extremely dedicated and, and uh, loyal to the cause. Yeah. I think that's something that uh, a lot of... Um people that come into the Air Force specifically, right? I've grown up in the Air Force. Um, my dad is retired Air Force. Um, but there is, there's such a heavy Filipino presence in the Air Force and in the military in general. And people, you know, I've heard them say like, that's, you know, they're like, that's so strange. And I'm like, well, it's really not that strange when you take into account, you know, there, there used to be Clark Air Force Base before Mount Pinatubo blew it up, you know, and just the heavy, the heavy involvement the United States and the Philippines have had together for such a long time. It's, it's not a surprise, but it does. It catches people, 
you know, off guard just how much of a presence of Filipinos and how much they have given to the United States military overall. Filipino well, they're, they're faithful people and they know that, uh, you know, during World War II, you know, we, uh, you know, we, we took care of, uh, we took good care of them. As a matter of fact, my first boss in the agency, Colonel Ray, I jumped into Corregidor at the age of 17 or 18. And then he went Green Beret. He went, yeah, I mean, again, another giant that, giant. you know, I had to live yeah. under his shadow. And uh, um, he, he, he was a GS-15 when I met him, and he had been our guy in Laos. I mean, just, you know, in, incredible kind of thing. So, you know, the Filipinos uh, are, are grateful uh, for them, you know, and, and they, they recognize what we brought, brought to the table. Um, and like, like, you know, they're, they're fighting people. It's like the ties. I mean, they're the nicest, most hospitable people until it's time to kick your ass. And then you're going to get an ass whooping because they are very, what they do. You know? Right. So, yep. That's awesome. I'd That's like funny. to go ahead, Zach. Oh, I was, uh, I was saying it's funny. I, I was going to, uh, kind of transition into, um, I lost my train of thought, and I apologize. But I was going to transition into. Yeah, I have an excuse for that. I'm 72 years old. I mean, so come on. <laughs> uh, long work week. I'll use that as an excuse. But you probably had way longer ones. But everyone's a little different. Um, with the Philippines, uh, you know, Brandon saying that the Philippines, uh, the Filipino people were like very, you know, proud people, and they they given a lot to the United States, and uh, they joined like the service and like that. Um, a lot of Americans today are kind of falling for kind of what you call the romance of like Marxism or like communism of socialism and stuff. Um, do you think that that is like something that needs to be, I guess, squashed or getting rid or gone rid of? And uh, how do you feel about like current generations and younger generations kind of being more into like socialism and communism, having seen it destroy your country are you worried that it could destroy the United States? Because there, there's the famous quote of Abe Lincoln that the United States like won't lose from the outside. They'll lose. It'll it'll lose and die from within. Is this the within cancer that could potentially end it all? Yeah, you know it does keep me up at night sometimes. And, and uh, but you know there's there's a saying that you know hard times make hard men. Hard men make good times. Good times make soft men. Um, th this romance with um, with socialism, um, again, I, I don't understand. We're an educated, na well, we're a nation that knows how to read and write. I don't know how educated we are as far as getting behind just the, the headlines of something and, not, and reading the whole story and seeing it in the last paragraph says, by the way, this is all bullshit because whatever, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it, it's, yeah, it, 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 for me... I mentioned it earlier. I don't have a problem with you being a socialist or a communist. Go somewhere else where that's the case. And if you like it there, stay there. Congratulations. You know, um, uh, my wife got uh, People magazine and it had a picture of Jane Fonda on the front. So I immediately took a, a magic marker, put a bullseye and a bullet hole in her forehead. I didn't say anything to my wife. She comes over to have breakfast. She goes, what the heck, you know? And I said, you can't forget the treason that this woman committed against us. Hanoi Jane. Hanoi Jane. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, to, to, to me, that mentality. Now, it's very easy to be a communist when you have a chauffeur driving your Mercedes and you're having lobster and champagne for dinner. Of course you can be a communist. This stuff yep. is great. You know, everybody should be enjoying my lobster. Just don't come take mine. Mm -hmm. You know. 
So well, it, 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 is, it goes back to, again, we don't understand the freedoms that we have in this country. And most importantly, for guys like us collectively, the price of admission that we have paid to, to uh, try to keep it that way. You know? So uh, yeah, I, I'm a firm believer in service. Uh, I've said this for years. Um, again, if I was king for a day, you would have to have some service. And, and it doesn't, you don't have to be a G.I. Joe. You don't have to be ninja. You could be, you know, th there's only two or three professions that don't exist in the military. Investment banking, prostitutes, I don't know. There's only a couple <laughs> out there, professionally, right? right. Um, you want to be an HR person. You want to be a policeman. Yep. You want to be a firefighter. You want to be a paramedic. You want to be a fighter pilot. You want to be a PJ. You want to be a Green Beret. You want to be a doctor, lawyer, Indian chief. All that exists in the, in, 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 in the services, in the four branches. And if people had to do two years of service, just like Israel is a perfect example. And then you yeah. go into the service, but you do two years active duty. So you understand, because when you're surrounded with those kind of people, it, your eyes open up, your, your heart opens up, your brain opens up. And you see more. firsthand that the sacrifices that people have to make for you to go to that ice cream place, eat something and not get blown up. Yeah. Yeah, I like when you said before that it's really easy to be a communist when you've got a chauffeur, right, driving you around. It always cracks me up and you see the people talking about communism and how great it is. And they think that they're just going to be knitting sweater mugs during the revolution and they're not going to get signed up to go work in the salt mine, you know, like you don't need everybody else. And it's just like mm -hmm. they have this they have this notion that you know, communism is just this. Oh, you know, we're going to get together and kumbaya and we're going to all write poetry and hold hands later. You know, it's like that's that is not it at all. And if your ideas have to be forced at the end of a gun, they're probably not good ideas. Yeah, that is true. Spot on. Spot yeah, on. they always also they also like to say, oh, that wasn't true communism. That was like a different version of it. If we did true communism, it would it would be great. But you know, capitalism ruined line. it or someone yeah, else. Yeah. This time. That's, that's yeah. the line that I can hear. Well, we're yeah. going to do it right this time. Are you kidding me? Yep. Since 1917, you've been trying this stuff and it doesn't work. Yeah. Time and time again, unless, you know, and, and the, the other phrase that I love using is I just say, yeah, communism makes everybody equal, equally miserable, except for the leadership who are, you know, the, it's funny because I, I, I look at the, uh, one of the Spanish TVs. I, I, I don't watch TV, but I, I read all my, uh, all my news on the computer. Mm -hmm. And there's this, this network in Miami called America TV, and they cover a lot of the stuff that's going on in Cuba. Mm -hmm. and, and it's amazing to see, you know, the, 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 the stuff that's going on, the crimes that, that, are, that are being committed, the desperation of people, you know, um, the... the we we need to secure our borders not to keep us in the country you know it's, yeah. it's people i have yet to see a miami in person build a raft a makeshift raft and put a a weed eater back as a propeller mm -hmm. and go to Cuba. yeah and if you yeah. do that i will tell you what i will salute you if you want to be a communist and you build one of those barges and you spend six days out of sea like my uncle did and almost died and you make it to Cuba, you deserve to be decorated and you deserve to become a communist. You know, I think it's funny. Some of the people that would sit here and say how terrible of a country the United States is, but then they champion 
people coming across the border illegally because they're going to have so much of a better life. It's like, how much more counterintuitive can your ideology be when you're trying to convince me that our country is terrible, but then you're championing these people for walking across the border and seeking asylum? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it doesn't, the whole thing, it just doesn't make any sense, this ideology that these people hold. And, and the immigration issue doesn't make any sense. As, as I said from the very beginning, I am an immigrant. I came to this country legally, but I came to this country as, as an immigrant looking for freedom, not for financial stuff. We were middle class in Cuba. But, um, you know, it, it, it amazes me to see the naivete of people when it comes to the border situation. Okay. I am, I'm not a dumb guy, but I like Definitely bringing not. things to the micro. Okay. And here's what the example that I tell people, I say, okay, so you have a nice house in a nice neighborhood and somebody moves down the street in not so nice side of the, of the, of the neighborhood right. and they knock on your door one day and they say, hey, uh, you know, can, can you give me a cup of sugar or can you help me out or something like that? Well, you know who that person is, you find out who that person is and you decide to help that person. That's good. But if you break into my house in the back and take over my back bathroom and bedroom and pop a kid, he's not a Prado. And I'm going to no. shoot you. So how is that different than not controlling our borders? We need immigration in this country badly. We really mm -hmm. do. We do. We need, yes. We need legal. We need to know who is coming into your house. Come on, when you guys, you know, when, when you tell your wife, hey, yeah, get, get somebody to paint the house, what's the first thing that they have to do? To find out who this individual, what are the credit credentials? Yeah. You vet that person, you know. Uh, so it's exactly the same, same thing. You know, they, they, they uh, so the, the problem with immigration is twofold. The most imminent problem, of course, is controlling the borders and allowing in. I'm not, I would not put a quota. I would put in, bring in as many people as can come in legally. Well, even if the numbers are the same, at least they're legal. We know who they are. We know what they're coming here to do. You know, they've caught Chinese. They've caught Iranians. They've caught all kinds of crap coming through that border fentanyl. that they have no... You know, the fentanyl phenomena is, is just mm -hmm. off the chart. Yeah. So, you know, but the second part of the problem is that we need to streamline our immigration procedures so we can bring in the people that we need in a very quick time. You know, for, for, for the average Latin American or for the Latin, for, for average anything out there, to get into the United States, it takes several years of paperwork. And, you know, some of them don't have the money to do that kind of stuff. So we, we need to fix both things, Diddy Mao. I mean, you know, we have to fix the, the immigration uh, clearance process so it could be expedited. Um, not everybody's going to be a doctor, lawyer, Indian chief. We got plenty of those in the United States. We need the people that are coming here to do like my father did, manual labor, and climb up the ranks and, 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 and become an American. Um, so the, the, those two things, uh, they, they don't happen in a vacuum. They both have to be fixed. You're right. Yeah, you hit the nail sure. on the head because immigration is one of the big is 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 literally one of the biggest reasons why this country is as great as it is. The the melting pot that we call ourselves with all these different thoughts, perspectives, different skills and abilities that people have brought in over centuries into our country is why we're so great. 
And some of these processes, you, you talked about streamlining immigration. You know, the, we have visas. I think it's the H-1B visa, which is a visa for um, people coming in on academic scholarships, you know, and then incentivizing those people staying here in the United States as well as the other half of that. Because if you have somebody come in and, you know, they... They, they do all this work and they graduate and they're in the tech industry or whatever you want them to stay, you know, it helped make this country even better than, than it already is. And you're right. Not everybody is that person who, you know, is going to write the next great computer software or whatever. You know, you need people who want to come here, who want to be a part of society and be productive. And it doesn't matter what that looks like. As long as you want to come here and be productive, I'm all for that. Like you said, no, there's no cap on that. I want to see your work ethic. I want to see you contribute to your society, and that's okay, and that's good enough for me. You know, it's, it's funny because my wife says this all the time because she's the one that hands all, all the stuff in the household. And she says, we says, why don't people become plumbers or electricians? You know, there's kids yeah. that go to college, get four-year degree in underwater basket weaving, <laughs> amount $70,000 worth of debt. Then they come out and they go, oh, can't get a job. Yeah. Well, Wonder guess what? Well, that guy that fixed our plumbing showed up for 10 minutes. It was $120. Yeah. So come on, you, you can well, make a very good living doing something. Yeah, you can. And, and the problem is that they, we tell kids at a young age that you, you see that guy who's a plumber and you don't want to be like him because you see him doing manual labor when in fact these trade jobs we need, right? And you think and these look- lights on and the, the internet service we have, like all of those things, the working plumbing in your house, that doesn't just happen magically. You know, there's people that maintain those things. And we got to mm-hmm. stop, um, you know, like almost demonizing these trade jobs and then, you know, get kids to understand at a young age that those are very honorable positions. You can flush your toilet. You can thank a plumber, you know, like. Yep, absolutely. absolutely. It's a I reality. It yeah. is. I think a what big a, issue, though, with like ideologies about like immigration and a bunch of other stuff is that a lot of Americans or just a lot of people in general, they make the decisions based off of does it make me feel good? Not does it actually do good? Mm-hmm. So they're thinking like, oh, I we should just let them all in because that's the good thing to do. And your your house analogy, your house metaphor um, works into it. I, I saw a video um, a couple weeks ago where it was like a rally for like immigration and like, you know, let any for everyone in all this type of stuff. And there was a guy going around with like a clipboard and he was like, Hey, we're part of this organization. Um, you're saying let everyone in. Well, we're looking for people to house them uh, for a couple like weeks or months. Um, would you be willing to do that? And yeah. not one from that entire rally that was saying, let them all in was like, no, well, that's my house. Like, I, I don't want them there. Like they got to go somewhere else. So like, they don't actually want to do good. They just want to feel good about what they're a part. They don't realize that things have further consequences or that it's a domino effect of like future issues. Um, they're just like, well, I'm part of the good feeling squad. So I, I'm great today. And I think that's something that needs to be like rectified or fixed. Well, when, when you look at the fentanyl issue, when you look at the infiltration of people into this country that are not regular immigrants either. Mm -hmm. The greater majority of the people trying to come across that border are people that are desperate to provide for their family. I get it. Uh, You know, I I fully understand that. And and that's why I say we need to have a program in place that expedites that legally. You know, they can come in, they can request, they can come in, you know, get vetted, boom, and and, and get to work, get a work permit, pay taxes, do all this kind of stuff. Right. But 
when 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 you get into it in, 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 into the point that you were making is, is exactly so it just like the communist idea you know it is so easy to say oh let them all in but when they start coming in through your gated community and putting tents outside you're going to be pissed off mm-hmm. and blame the police for not taking care of things or you're gonna you know um you voted it into it into your situation you voted into your situation so again this part of the ignorance that we have we're such a well-read country with so many resources for information yet we're actually very ignorant to the realities of the world and the realities of the world are really really simple guys evil exists you look at the enemies that we have the russians the chinese the persians you know the Iranians, uh, mm-hmm. they are all predators. You know, mm-hmm. the, the Chinese have been an imperial power since before Christ. Yeah. The Russians are, are, are made up of Vikings and Cossacks. All right. And the Persians were the, the conquering, you know, power of the world for, for, for hundreds of years. Right. So they, they see us as food. They really do. They know we have a mighty military. We know that, it, that coming into the United States and fighting in our ground is just going to get you shot because we have a lot of people here that will fight, uh, whether they're Amen. in service or not. And, and uh, so they, they know that. But, but at the same time, it, it, it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day if you're so naive that you're willing to keep people coming in, no matter what the consequences, through that border in spite of the fact, and it never makes the news. They've caught China. They caught a Chinese guy not too long ago. Yeah. They've yep. caught Canadians coming through. They've caught you know uh, people with with records of being terror terrorists and other organizations, narco yeah. trafficking, and then of course the, the 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 drug and all the other things that accompanies that. That is, I, I saw the statistics. It's it's in the hundreds of thousands of, of kids that are dying every year from this fentanyl crap. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is. That you you don't you don't. It's like somebody's trying to pump poison into your house and you're sitting there going like, okay, well, I'll open the window. It just it blows my mind. It blows my mind. It, it's crazy too, because we can identify where it's coming from as far as like, you know, in the grand scheme, you know what I mean? We know where these people are learning how to make it from. We know it's coming up from in the, the Southern border up into our country. And you would think that this motivation that would, it would give you motivation to do something about it. And it seems like to me, at least sometimes that you know people don't want to do anything about it because they enjoy creating chaos because it gives them the opportunity to do things behind closed doors. Yeah. And, and, and again, we, we, we have it so good that people don't really worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's terrible. It's going on down there. We need to help them. But let me go get a yogurt over here at Starbucks and pay $17 for a cup of coffee and uh, play on my computer, you know, and it's just, wow, you, you have a rough life. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Very difficult. So you, as, as Zach, in, uh, obviously you, in your book, you dedicated to CIA agents and against the negative perceptions that people may have against the CIA. And you're considering just kind of how the political spectrum is in our country and how, you know, political parties have tried to manipulate intelligence agencies and, you know, um, criminal justice agencies for political gain. What would you tell somebody trying to go into the CIA today? What advice would you give them considering that? Well, you know, let's kind of go backwards a little bit here. The the first thing that that the agencies and the military have to be is apolitical. Agreed. First thing that they taught me 
when I went for my master's in espionage at the farm was we do not do policies. We do not do politics. We collect intelligence one way or the other, and we do black ops, covert action. Um, that's what the agency does on the behest of the president of the United States. That's our, that's our boss. So whether you're, you know, I, at least when I was in the agency, you were not allowed to have a political sticker on your car. Mm-hmm. Right or left, you could. Because right. if you're far right or far left and I am the opposite and I'm your boss, you know, that, that's not fair to you that, you know, that, right. that you may feel. So, uh, so the first thing is putting it, you know, putting the horse in, in, in front of the cart for a change is we need to understand that we were designed to be apolitical. The strength of the U.S. military is that it is apolitical. No matter what the internal beliefs are, you may be right, left, middle, whatever the hell it is, I don't care. But mm-hmm. the military, as far as is, is, it is, it is a, a monolithic, you know, whoever our boss is, that's who we're going to serve, whether we voted for him or her, and whether we, we liked them or not. So, you know, that, 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 that part of the equation to me is just as important as everything else. Understanding that the agency um, has to remain apolitical. Now, the reason I wrote the book is because, you know, after 9-11, we, we got 139 stars on our wall, okay? And... Almost a third of that is post 9-11. Some of those guys and gals I knew personally, okay? Mm-hmm. And, and for me, it really, when I, when, you know, when I retired and, and, and had time for a little introspection, as you know, the lives we live is all, you know, you're doing 110 miles an hour. You're seeing everything, but you don't have time to, to be introspective about it. Um, you look at, 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 at how fast things move and how we look back and start realizing, you know, we could have done this, if we should have done that. Um, how, why did this happen? Uh, so the, the agency, for me, when during introspection, I realized that it's immoral for the children and grandchildren of my colleagues to know about the agency through Jason Bourne, American Made, and all this crap that Hollywood puts out there vis mm-hmm. uh, the agency and everything else. You know, it, it, I, I will tell you, um, I'm, I'm not saying we haven't had traitors. I'm not saying we, we have not had, you know, people that, that, that have done illegal things. We're part of the, any, any organization that's made up of humans. Yep. It's going to have, you know, the, the black sheep. Um, but it is, it is a, 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 an organization of people that are so dedicated and morally committed to the cause that I just cannot continue to hear their names, you know, and, and their reputations being maligned the way they are. You know, I, I have a, a little vignette in the book that is one of my best examples of the ethos of of, uh, of the average, you know, if there's such a thing, a person in, in the agency. Well, when 9-11 happened um, that night, I, I was going back into my office. I slept in my office for three days after 9-11. I'm going back to my office, and the deputy of the Hezbollah branch was a lady, and uh, Christy, and she was seven or eight months pregnant. She was at her computer at seven o'clock at night. Now you got to understand, people don't don't people don't realize this. After the attack, all federal buildings were evacuated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they thought that that fourth plane was going to be coming into the agency. Because so think about it. Right. You hit the economics, you hit the military, you hit the intel. That's that's right. that's how you they take them out. Reasonable. So 
the, the agency was evacuated, mm -hmm. except for the Colorado Terrorist Center, which the majority of the guys and gals stayed. So I walk up to Christy and I go, what are you doing here? Seven o'clock at night. She goes, yeah, well, you know, she starts shaking her finger at me. She goes, boss, you know, before 9-11, before today, Hezbollah had killed more Americans than anybody else. So I said, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. I said, but let me tell you something. I have delivered two kids in my life and neither, none of them were mine. I ain't about to do a third. So you're going <laughs> to cool. got my logistics guy to take her ass home. Yeah. Well, fast forward a few years, every time she would see me, she said, you know, every time my daughter has a birthday, I think of you and what the hell was I thinking? What's the moral of that story? What is the single biggest drive in humanity? It's the mother instinct. You know, don't mess with a bear with cubs. Mm -hmm. And here you are, eight months pregnant, in a building that could have a bullseye in it. And when she realized, you know, it, eventually when she realized, she she literally said, I, I can't believe that I did that. That's dedication. Mm -hmm. When you can override the maternal instinct to get the mission done, come on, guys, doesn't get any more solid than that. And this is not a Rambo ground branch, you know, ass kicking something. This is a very refined young lady who speaks a couple of languages and she was willing to sacrifice herself and her baby unconsciously um, to get to get to the bottom of the threat. I, lo I love hearing stuff like that about people, especially around uh, centric to 9-11, because I was obviously I was a kid when that happened. Uh, my dad was stationed at Yakota Air Base. Um, I was in ninth grade. And for days afterwards, you know, my dad, uh, he was Intel, retired Intel, all source analyst. And, but he wasn't doing that job all the time because, you know, they had him doing augmentee duties for security or whatever afterwards, because obviously being overseas, you know, Security postures changed and all that stuff. Um, but the one thing I and obviously you you were living it, you were working it, you were you were jobbing it during that time. But the one thing I have always taken away from that and listening to my dad and the people he worked with who were active duty at the time is that sense of duty that they had and then the sense of community that it created. Um, you know, on on September twelfth, right. It has stuck with me my whole life. And so to hear you talk about that and hear the story to me, you could not have humanized the CIA and the people that work to protect the rest of us and our country more in that story. I think that that was that was like the perfect summary of that, because like you said, she she didn't even think about herself. She didn't think about the, her baby that she was carrying. All she thought about was needing to do her job and take care of our country, this beautiful United States. And I do. I love hearing stuff like that. And it, it, that's more inspirational to me than, than just about anything. You know, 9-11, of course, was like a game changer for all of us. And, and there's mm -hmm. there's things that still, you know, I can't get it out of my brain. But, uh, you know, we had um, two ground branch guys who had left and had mm -hmm. huge jobs with Coca-Cola. These guys were head of security of this plane. They were making six figures. And they came back on 9-13. And said, we'll start as a GS-12, GS-13. We don't give a shit. We just want to be here. Sign us up. It, it, there were several of those. I had one guy who became uh, Hank Crumpton's uh, deputy. Hank Crumpton was uh, was uh, my predecessor. I was when I was chief. I was chief of ops at the counter terrorist mm -hmm. when 9/11 happened. He was the guy before me. 
And okay. so when, uh, when we, we started the war, because let's face it, the, the agency's boots on the ground, the first boots on the ground were in my, my, my Green Beret buddies. He was yeah. my guy. You know, we had our guys on the team. You know, they are vectoring our, our special forces in. And I had this guy walk in. I never met him before. And he, show, he says, um, so look, I know you're busy, but these are my retirement papers. You give me a job, I'll tear my papers right now. I said, what's your name? Let me have your, let me have your paperwork. Yeah, come back in an hour. So I G2 the guy. The guy was a stud. He was, he'd been a chief of station somewhere, former Navy, um, a military guy. And um, he came back. I said, you're hired. You're going to be the deputy to Hank Crumpton. You're going to be, be leading the war against our guys on the ground. And there were just dozens, dozens of stories like that of people that, and and, and there's like everything else in life, there's, all, there's always some levity. We yeah. actually had a, a local dentist in Langley who came to the gate wow. and to speak to somebody in the counter-terrorist side. And so they, we, they, God knows who they send out there to talk to the guy, probably security guy more than anything else. Probably. And the guy, all he wanted to say was, I said, listen, I know how to induce pain. If you guys wow. need anybody for interrogations, I'm your man, I'm free because we got to get to the bottom of this. So it's humorous and morbid at the same time. <laughs> But yeah. I'll take that guy in a firefight anytime because he was Hell willing yeah. to that line for paying back what they did to us. It was awesome. a horrible time that, that also had some incredible, incredible stories uh, like some of the we've, you barely we've barely touched on. There's, there's, there's hundreds. It, it, at Fort Bragg, there were so many guys that, to, that told me, says, yeah, I joined right after 9-11. Yep, I joined mm-hmm. right after 9-11. Yep, I joined right after 9-11. Yeah, and all they see is twenty years of war. You know? Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm a I'm a recruiter now for the Air Force. You know, it's all about like gotta make goal, gotta make goal. And I have uh, flight chiefs who were new recruiters during like 9/11 or like some senior uh, pro soups and stuff today. And I asked them questions about it, and uh, they said on on 2001, uh, they were barely making goal, couldn't get anyone through the door, no one wanted to join. 9-11 happened, and then on 9-12, they had lines. Like, people knew it was coming. They were ready. America was ready. And it just goes to show that, like, you know, on 9-10, you know, there was Republicans. There was Democrats. There was all these division and all this type of stuff, usually throughout the United States. 9-11 happened. On 9-12, it was just Americans. There was – didn't matter – who you were or what you were on 912 we were all Americans and we were ready to fight um and ready to go and ready to come together and we did and it it, it lasted a while i would say it was probably till about like the mid 2010s before the division started to kind of like creep up and really really take hold again but yeah no, at the end of the yeah. day when push comes to shove we're all Americans yeah you know the the sad thing though is that the, you know the uh, the the calcium in the backbone starts to melt as as time goes really quickly mm-hmm. you know uh, and, 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 and unfortunately, uh, we've become so politicized nationwide. And look, there, there's a real basic rule in both military ops and, and in, in intelligence ops. You cannot run operations through a political optic, okay? No. Uh, you cannot uh, run, you, you cannot fight a war uh, judging by your morality because your enemy has none of that. Yep. Um, so yeah, it, it is, uh, it, it it's really disturbing to me to see the 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 uh, again you know how how good we have it 
that we don't realize that you have to fight for it. You have to fight for it. You know, we, when I don't, I don't do politics. I don't talk about politics in any podcast, but mm. I do like history. And I try to tell people, I say, look, when Jimmy Carter took over as president, now Jimmy Carter was a gentleman, mm-hmm. a brilliant guy, a veteran, a God-loving individual, non-corrupt. He was also very naive, and he was also came across as food. What happened during his four years? The Iran Russia, the Iranians take our hostages for 444 days. Mm-hmm. We lose the Panama Canal. We give away the Panama Canal. To On this day, it's still the most strategic point in this hemisphere for military operations. Mm-hmm. Why? Because they saw him as food. What happened when Reagan took over? The day uh, he I... in, the yeah. next day the hostages were released. Yep. All uh, 444 days, they did not go 445 because he came in, in into into power and went on the 444. And 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 that just goes on and on and on. He declared war on 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 communism in Latin America. And it stopped. I mean, it, it, Nicaragua. If if we had not stopped Nicaragua, Salvador was already falling. Honduras was already under attack. It, it would have been, the, the whole thing would have gone. And, and it's, now it's getting there in a different way through politics and everything else. But uh, yeah, it, 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 is, uh, it is a very frustrating thing to see the, the, the minute number of Americans that walk the walk. And that's why Veterans Day and Memorial Day, I always include our law enforcement and first responders because... Uh, you know, a lot of people are now saying, you know, hey, thank you for your service. And and, and I we all appreciate that. I've, but I don't know how many lunches I've paid for without them even knowing because there were a couple of soldiers there. And I would write everything on, there, on the ticket and, you know, and, and pay for it or whatever. Um, but uh, th- that that's there's a big difference between that and, and actually stepping up and, and, and uh, doing something about it. And again, not everybody has to be a G.I. Joe. But everybody needs to contribute to this country. This is a, this is a team sport, and we are under threat. We do have enemies out there that are not going to let up. They're no, not yeah. let, you know, we we have one big fallback. I mean, one one uh, thing that holds us back, and I can't criticize this because it's democracy. You know, the difference is the Russians have fifty-year plans. The Chinese have hundred-year plans. Right. Their plans are never interrupted. They may be tweaked. Like the Chinese, hey, we can do more damage economically than we can militarily. So let's start buying every every country in the world that has resources and all this kind of stuff. So um, it, yeah. it is it, it, it's out there and, and it's for real. You know, they uh, they're they're formidable enemies meant on undermining us, and we're the only the only country primarily standing in their way. We have some great allies. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. I've worked with the Brits. I've worked with the Aussies. The Poles, the Thais, there's a lot of people out there that have been loyal, you know, uh, uh, liaison partners. Um, but at the end of the day, it's the U.S. that that, that ends up leading uh, all these counter-misery uh, efforts. So, Right. And to me, taking away from what you said, the two biggest things, you talked about the difference between like Carter and, and Reagan. And that can be summarized in a simple statement of strength is deterrence. 
And when you have somebody who is, who exudes strength, you know, right. And, um, we had another guest on here who talked about how, when Trump sat down, um, he had literally sat down and had a dinner with other world leaders. He executed a missile strike on an Iranian general, Soleimani, right. And, and took him out and said, this is what I could do to you. And it's that sort of strength that you, you know, you, you're exuding when you do something like that, you make a statement that causes deterrence, right? And then you bring up about, you know, the things that the Chinese do to, um, you know, undermine the United States and its efforts around the world. And the, the thing is that the difference between us and them is they see those economic avenues as just as much as of warfare as, you know, putting boots on the ground. It's an asymmetric style. And they have been at war with us in that way for a very long time. And the United States does just for some reason doesn't recognize it that way. It's taken such a long time for us to realize that they see that as a, a type of warfare. There is an economic battleground and that's how they mm-hmm. see it. Absolutely. Absolutely. They're, they're buying the way into the demise of this country and uh, Completely. economically, uh, you know, and, and, and again, you know, the, the fentanyl again, a lot of that comes from China. You think that they're not letting that stuff go out because they know where it's going? Yeah. yeah teaching without, them how to make know, it. Something, there's something that, that, I've, that I've read, and it's actually in Latin, but my Latin sucks, but it says, if you want peace, prepare for war. Prepare for war. And yeah. I teach this all the time when, when I'm teaching, um, you know, military tactics or, 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 or anything that, that goes along that line is the basic thing is what usually doesn't happen is what you prepare for. Mm-hmm. If you're prepared, think usually that is going to happen. Something else that you didn't prepare for may, but I'm a firm believer in that. And, and that goes into, again, the macro to where you have leadership that says, look, you know, I want to negotiate. But they got to sit across that table and you got to look like you can bite back because yeah. Putin is not a socialite. And in Chinese leadership and the Iranians and North Korea, they will do anything to destroy us, mm-hmm. anything that they're capable. But if they look at you and they go, uh, yeah, this guy I don't want to mess with. Yeah, yeah. strength is deterrence. Yep. yep. It kind of goes back to the saying where I'd rather be a warrior in a garden than a gardener Gunner. in a war. Yeah, because it, it, you're not, you're not going to go far. Um, Japanese. Yeah. <laughs> you talked about, uh, you know, the CIA needs to keep like politics out and can't be political and the military needs to do that as well. Um, well, politics kind of got in the way. There was like those two executive orders from presidents that kind of made to where you like you couldn't assassinate certain people or anything like that. And you in the book, you talked about how um, one of your I can't remember his name exactly, but he ran into Osama bin Laden like while on a run and a whole bunch of other stuff, but he couldn't do anything about it. Is that kind of what you're leading at when like, you know, the politics should stay out of it? Because had they maybe captured or taken out Osama bin Laden at that time, um, obviously history would have been completely changed. We have no idea today. Is that kind of what you're alluding to? Without a doubt. Look, the, the guy that you're referring to is Billy Wall. Billy Wall was a le- legendary Green Beret, came to the agency, did a lot of surveillance for us. And he was our chief of surveillance in, in Khartoum when Osama bin Laden was there. He's mm-hmm. the one that, that saw and identified and photographed the jackal, Carlos the Jackal. So uh, an incredible individual. So here you have a guy who was legendary back Visog, 
legendary guy in Vietnam. He knows special forces. He is the Green Beret poster child. And he's telling you, uh, we can get this guy. You know how many times we we try to fly that up the flag? Dozens of times. Yeah. I started, I, I'm a plank owner of the Bin Laden Task Force. Mike Shorey was the chief. Right. I was the deputy of the station. And for us, we tried to get Bin Laden in Khartoum. We had all of the kind of intelligence, the millions of dollars that he was pouring into terrorist camps, his plans, how his network was growing. We used to call him the Godfather because he could he could reach out to other organizations and recruit them to work, you know, the enemy of my enemy kind of crap. Mm-hmm. And one day, you know, like I said, Billy and I were, were, were very good friends. And a couple of times we'd be sitting there as you go, we, the topic would always come up. He says, Rick, I could have killed him with a pencil. I could have killed him with a rock. You know, and if you look at, let, let's say that, okay, I, I don't have a problem putting a bullet in somebody's head. If they, you know, just imagine if somebody could have put a bullet in, in Hitler's head in 1937, okay? Right. So nine millimeter, 27 cents back then, and, you know, not millions of lives uh, lost there. Right. But yeah. if we had neutralized bin Laden, could have been a compromise, could have been a duct tape operation and render his ass out take him into interrogation, blah, blah, blah. The coal would have, been, would have happened. Mm-hmm. Chances are that the bombing of our twin embassies and uh, two embassies in Africa wouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. And you continue to take that over all the way to 9-11. So yeah. it, we, we do this time and time again where the politics, and in, in this case that the administration kept saying, well, we don't have enough proof that he's really evil. We have hundreds of reports from different sources from overhead look at you know filming the camps that he's building um that he is building an army he is building a a a very radical military capability to target us and you have a chance to take this guy out of the equation that blood is in our hands yeah. Absolutely. Even, even even from like a civilian law enforcement perspective, you can pull somebody in for less just to ask them questions, you know? Yep. Just why this person, the the level of nefarious planning and carrying out actions that he did to not just attempt to stop and carry out what you're talking about, it, it just kind of to me is like the definition of insanity. Yeah. It blows my mind that you said you said there that like well he's not evil enough like well how evil did he need to be right to you finally like do something well i guess he had to be evil enough to cause 9-11 for you to finally start doing something um and it president clinton has said in speeches and in like interviews that one of his like greatest regrets uh while president was not authorizing or pulling the trigger to take out Osama belong because he he had several times where he had the opportunity and the ability to just say, yeah, go for it. And he never did. Um, and I, you know, yeah. it's, he was worried about his ratings and he was worried about a bunch of other stuff. And he didn't think that it was going to get to that point and um, worried about his post presidential political career. And, th- and that makes sense. Cause you, you talked in your book about how you had, you had people in the CIA who are worried, you know, they don't want to say anything or do anything. Cause they're worried about their pension or their paycheck. And then you had the actual, like, the dogs in there doing the work kind of like what you fell into who were like, screw this. I'm doing it for America. But yeah, it was, it was something that he, he spoke about regretting is not, not doing it when he could. Yeah. You know, and you're talking about the morality of things, mm-hmm. you know, 9-11, we went after, uh, after the Taliban and Al Qaeda, but that's retaliation. 
Yeah. You know, right. the, the, the mission of the counterterrorist center is to preempt and disrupt. Not to do, you know, we'll do vengeance on anybody. That's, hell, that's, a, that's the easiest part. Right. But have fortitude to preempt and disrupt something before it happens, that's the money deal there. That's what you want to do. Yeah. And uh, we, we keep, you know, we, we keep missing those opportunities over and over and over again. Yeah. Well, we haven't um, we haven't had a large enough attack like 9-11 since it. Um, and you were still in the CIA until 2004. So you were there, you know, a couple of years after 9-11. Um, is there anything that maybe you could tell us if you're allowed to or anything that has a CIA for, uh, stopped potential other 9-11 since then? Like, is there things the American public, because you, you know, the CIA is very secretive. Do you think the U.S. populace would be more in tune with the CIA if they could come and be like, hey, we stopped like 15 more 9-11s or we stopped like 20 more? I don't know if there's an exact number, but... Obviously, they've had to have stopped at least another one since then. But is there ones you can maybe contribute or talk about, or the idea of it? Uh, you know, I have the, the issue that I have that is, if it's not in the book, I can't talk about it because anything that I say has to be pre-approved by the agency. But in generalities, yeah, I course. can guarantee you that we have disrupted dozens of plans and intentions that were evil against us here on our soil and overseas. You know, and and it isn't just CIA. Okay, we're yeah. talking. DEA, we're talking even the FBI, you know, with all the black guys that they've gotten of late, that again, that's politics. You know, the uh -huh. guys and gals that are out there doing God's work, they're doing God's work like our law enforcement folks are. are. So, yeah, you know, the, the, the morality is, is that, that we let these things happen and then blame everybody else. But the, the bottom line is when one when is in front of you and you could have actually, you know, justified changing history um and you didn't and that that to me is is something that they unfortunately i don't think those kind of people uh, worry about those kind of sins um but that that's bad karma 100 mm -hmm. well honestly rick it has been a, a serious pleasure talking to you and listening to what you have to say and there's been times in this conversation where I genuinely have just kind of been in awe in some of the things that you've gone through in your life and, and you're, you're willing to put it in a book for, for people like me and Zach and others to read. Um, but this this has been one of my favorite conversations I've ever had with somebody and, and just listening to what they have to say. So I genuinely, genuinely appreciate it. And I know Zach does too. You coming on and talking to just you know two regular guys uh, you know, and, and having this conversation with us, it means a lot, truly. Well, thank you. You're, you're helping me. And, you know, you, you guys have served and you continue to serve because what you're doing is a service right now. You know, you're getting this word. Out to, I don't know how many people, but people that are going to say, oh, wow, I hadn't thought of that. Or, gee, that's a different angle. Uh, so you, sure. we all continue to serve the way that, you know, and, and for me, let's face it, the book is my last firefight. I ain't doing anything but ride horses and motorcycles after this. But because nice. work, uh, especially the promo part. But yeah, it's, it's it's very rewarding to be able to look back and know that, you know, you didn't change the world, but you made a difference. A hundred percent. For sure. Well, we really appreciate you being here. Like Brandon said, we really enjoy talking with you. Uh, you. You said earlier that, you know, you were... You were in the shadows of other giants and stuff, um, but I, I think that you are a giant for 
other people for future generations uh your book um puts people in your shadow um so you you said that you know uh you appreciate being called a hero um and we we do want to let you know that you know you are a hero to a lot of americans and to a lot of people especially after reading this book um you're just the next giant for us to be in the shadow of and hopefully we can then or anyone listening could then be the next generation of giants to then put the next generation of americans in shadows as well so Thank you very much, Rick, for being here. We really appreciated everything. And to Can't everyone listening. This book enough, honestly. Yes, read his book. It was great. Or listen to it when you're driving six hours for work. Uh, it was uh it was an amazing, it was an amazing listen. It was an amazing read. Um, we appreciate everyone who's listening. Please make sure you like, comment, and subscribe. It really helps us out. And uh, we look forward to future podcasts with future great guests. All right, guys. Thank you for having me. Thank you.